Hey, and ladies, before we get started with this episode, we just needed to take a second to acknowledge uh, just how much the world has changed between when we were recording the interviews for this episode. Um, of course, we're talking about COVID-19. Caroline and I and our unladylike producers are all uh, essentially sheltering in place right now. Um, and we just wanted to reach out and say... Hello, and that we hope you all are safe and have plenty of toilet paper to get you through these um, just very, very strange and uncertain times. And manicures might seem like the most insignificant topic to discuss on this podcast amidst a global pandemic. However, we hope that these stories will maybe provide some comfort to you, a little uh, inspiration maybe for some quarantines nail art of your own. And we also wanted to share some ways that you can support the kinds of folks that we are talking about today in this episode. And because this episode is all about nails, we wanted to offer up some resources for nail salon workers who are out of work right now because of COVID-19. So you can donate to the One Fair Wage Fund, which directly supports a variety of tipped workers, including stylists and manicurists. Another option is the Nail Salon Workers Resilience Fund, which was put together by the New York Healthy Nail Salon Coalition. Funds from them will be distributed directly to nail salon workers. And if you have an existing relationship with a nail tech, you can also reach out to them about buying a gift certificate for now to help them stay afloat. And we'll put links to all of those organizations that Caroline just mentioned in our show notes and on our website, unladylike.co, under this episode. Uh, and if you want to connect with the Unladylike community, head over to our private Facebook group because Unladies there have been doing an incredible job of just sharing what's happening with them and <laughs> tips and tricks for surviving uh, through this, again, very uncertain time. Um, and with that, Caroline, shall we get on with the show? Let's do it. Getting acrylics and wearing them consistently, I just felt fly. Like I felt like a bad bitch all the time. I loved it. I just loved the look. I loved the feel. I liked the way my hand sounded when I texted. I like the way that ev I just everything about them. I love them. My nails are always done. To know me is to know that my nails are always done. I can't go like there's no situation where I don't have my nails done at this point. And welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules and sometimes break a nail in the process. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And you know, this episode is really on brand for us, considering that our logo is a polished middle finger. <laughs> yeah, uh, which stands, I think, probably in contrast to our own <laughs> middle finger. So, yeah. uh, Caroline, before we go, another second in this episode, mm -hmm. I got to ask you, uh, how are your nails looking today? Like... <laughs> Are you sporting like a commemorative Manny? <laughs> yeah, I think you could say just ragged uh, from all of the hand sanitizing I've been doing. Ooh. What about you? <laughs> you know, I don't know that they're falling apart per se, but I am rocking my typical five-year-old look, oh. which is just clipped short, <laughs> unpolished, and just some visible dirt speckled around. <laughs> 
<laughs> to be totally honest. <laughs> See, people, this is why we call in the experts, like the bad bitch you just heard. Tembi Dentonhurst is a writer for New York Magazine's The Strategist. She's also a fake nails fanatic and wants to make one thing very clear. If you're a white woman under 30 living in L.A., walking around with <laughs> acrylics, my only request is that you don't say that you got the idea from Kylie Jenner or the Kardashians or anybody that looks like them because it's not true. And today's episode is all about why that's not true. Like, even if you don't know a stiletto nail from a coffin cut, it's important to understand how women of color have been the most pivotal innovators and trendsetters in modern manicure history, long before the mainstream fashion press began crowning Kylie the queen of acrylics. Then there's the nail salon itself and the technicians on the other side of the counter. Vietnamese nail salons dominate the industry because of Vietnamese women. Nails wasn't something that they learned in Vietnam or is a part of Vietnamese culture. It was something that they picked up in the U.S. But Vietnamese women are businesswomen, and that's something that's in the DNA. In her documentary, Nailed It, Adele Free Pham connects the dots of how 20 Vietnamese women invented the American nail salon and helped facilitate a whole new statement nail culture. Adele's also going to fill us in on why neighborhood nail salons have been a lifeline for generations of refugees and immigrants. Then we'll hear from Tembi about how her fake nails express who she is as a Black lesbian. It's all to find out how have women of color shaped the meaning of manicures. Fifty years ago, standalone nail salons barely existed. Like, yeah, you could paint your nails at home, but if you wanted to get your nails done done, you'd have to go to a high-end salon. And as Adele explains, it was not cheap. Nails was something that was reserved for the jet set, for wealthy women, for actresses like Tippi Hedren, Barbara Streisand, Cher. It was something that was geared towards women with money and time. And the prices of a manicure were much, much higher at that time, too. Before neighborhood nail salons started popping up around Los Angeles in the late 70s and early 80s, a fresh set could easily run you $200. The 1970s was also when fake nails really started popping off, thanks in part to the invention of the French manicure. And that's also the decade when Vietnamese women started getting in on the nails game. There was that stereotype that when you told people that you were Vietnamese, they did ask sometimes if you owned a nail salon. So that correlation between Vietnamese people and nail salons has always been there growing up. And I just wondered why. I mean, why do so many Vietnamese people do this thing? There are more than 100,000 standalone nail salons in the U.S., and as of 2015, over half of all of the nail techs working inside of them are Vietnamese. But like many first-generation Vietnamese Americans, Adele was uneasy with the Nail Salon Association. She grew up pretty disconnected from her Vietnamese heritage, but was well aware of how Asian nail salons were negatively stereotyped as sketchy, unfriendly, and unhygienic. And that's why when Adele was a teenager and her dad, who's a Vietnamese refugee, encouraged her to go work with some of her cousins who owned a couple of nail salons, she was like, yeah, no. 
I didn't want to be touching anybody's feet. And I correlated the nail salon with pedicures and scrubbing people's feet as well. So it was sort of a double-edged sword, this uncomfortability, not understanding the culture, even though I'm a part of the culture, and then also not wanting to have to perform these bodily services on other women, being forced to, in a sense. So that was the oppressive point in my mind, like, you know, just being stuck in a salon and constantly working on other people's beauty. Although Adele became a filmmaker instead of a nail tech, it wasn't like she didn't grapple with her ideas about Vietnamese culture and nail salons. So to sort it all out, Adele got behind the camera to make her documentary, Nailed It. And when I started, I thought that I was going to expose more of a a uh, hazardous chemical story inside of the nail salon. And although that's a part of the journey, it's not at the forefront of the film because it's not necessarily what I found. What Adele found was a series of simultaneously horrifying and serendipitous events that catalyzed today's multi-billion dollar nail industry and some of the very best nail art on Instagram. So how did all that happen? Like, what compelled Vietnamese women to create the standalone nail salon culture and make it affordable? Well, first off, a little bit of history that starts not in the U.S., but in Vietnam. In 1975, after decades of war there, Saigon fell to communist forces. And that year alone, the United States sponsored the American resettlement of 125,000 Vietnamese refugees, including the group of women who would eventually launch the modern nail industry. They were placed in a refugee camp outside of Sacramento. And they went from being upper-class women married to uh, South Vietnamese military officers to having absolutely nothing. So... That was, of course, a shock and a trauma. At that Sacramento refugee camp called Hope Village, the Vietnamese women met a Hollywood A-lister and unlikely advocate, actress Tippi Hedren. Tippi is most famous for her roles in Alfred Hitchcock films like The Birds. But in her downtime in the mid-70s, she volunteered at Hope Village, first bringing in typists and tailors to teach the refugees new skills. Then she noticed something. These 20 Vietnamese refugee women were looking at her nails and constantly commenting at how beautiful they were. So it just clicked in her head that manicuring was something that she would be able to facilitate for them by bringing her personal manicurist, Dusty Coots, to the refugee camp every week to get these women trained in manicuring. So she didn't just throw them out, or they didn't just go out into the world and try to, to find manicuring jobs, which was very hard at the time. There were very few, if no nails-only nail salons. She actually placed them in beauty salons this first group of 20 refugees turned manicurists soon began branching out on their own to take their trade beyond high-end Beverly Hills beauty parlors. A few eventually opened standalone nail salons around California and began building their own family-run operations. The strategy makes sense, too. Like, this was a cash business that paid pretty well at the time and didn't require fluency in English. And once the women broke into the market, they created more opportunities for the men to get involved, too. 
there was a barrier of entry for these men to find any jobs in this country because they just weren't wanted in the workforce. It's threatening to see all these people come over and there's the thought that, oh, well, they'll do my job for half as much. Or why are these people, you know, getting these resources when I need that for for my family to survive? But women are able to slip under the radar a little bit. And because this is such a gendered industry geared towards women, it was less threatening. So that's another way that this incredible adaptation came into play through the nail salon. And a lot of times when their men couldn't find work, women invite them in, train them to be manicurists or allow their husbands to be, you know, the manager of the salon. Um, But you see women creating employment for everybody, including the men. Families told folks back home about the nail salons, then helped to get them trained when they got to the States. From there, more salons opened as more Vietnamese immigrated to the U.S. When you think about the job opportunities that are open to immigrants and non-speaking refugees, what is there, really? So it just became immediately a, a way for this culture to regroup, being led by women, to open businesses that could sustain their families and also bring their extended families into the country. And they just got on it right away. So before we get more into the rise of the standalone nail salons, and especially like the discount nail salons, we did want to talk a little bit more about Tippy because we're curious whether from your point of view, if her relationship with that initial group of refugees was a white savior narrative that uh, white folks often love to tell themselves, or if it seemed like this was more of a woman using her privilege in a positive way. Like, how would you kind of describe that relationship? I think it's both. But to be using her privilege in a positive way is what we can really take away from that story. And from my research, there are no Vietnamese women doing this rather obscure thing at the time before Tippi intervened and really did a lot to not only educate these women in manicuring, but to get them jobs. So I will always respect that. And, you know, I do get some backlash because I am perpetuating this white savior myth. But if it's true, You know, you have to pay respect to that and you have to respect the person that really was thinking outside of the box to help people that she didn't know that she saw were going through a desperate situation. But on the other side of that, you can't give all of the credit to Tippi. I don't think that Tippi had a sense that Vietnamese women were going to totally revolutionized the industry by dropping prices and opening nail salons in as far-flung places as, you know, Minnesota and Alaska. Opening nail salons in far-flung places became so common, in fact, that there's even a phrase for this in Vietnamese, which translates to doing nails across the states. But revolutionizing the industry wasn't limited to spreading out geographically. They successfully lobbied the California government to provide nail tech licensing exams in Vietnamese. They also opened beauty and nail schools specifically for their community and broke into manufacturing nail supplies and products as well. In the 80s and 90s, the number of licensed manicurists tripled in the U.S. And Vietnamese nail salons led the way in lowering the price of getting your nails done 
down to just $15 for a simple paint job. Price dropping is a phenomenon that happens in industry in Vietnam. So if you have the same product as your neighbor, how you're going to compete with them is just to drop the price. And I think Vietnamese people were able to take this to an extreme because they had that family network in the salon and, you know, almost like a desperate work ethic at times to take on the the difference in prices with the amount of hours they were willing to spend inside of the salon working 24-7. And because of that, you know, there is this perception and an overriding stereotype of Asian people in general that they will cut corners and drop prices to a degree where no one else can compete. And you know, there there is some truth to that statement um, because they were doing what they had to do in order to survive and to make room for this whole new nails-only industry that so many people and families were a part of. Sociologist Susan Erickson described the Vietnamese nail boom of the 80s and 90s as the McNailing of the business. A luxury beauty treatment became quick and affordable for the masses. It came with costs, though. Like Adele said, these family operations ran long hours, sometimes in unventilated spaces with toxic products, and price dropping made it tougher for manicurists and nail techs to make a living. But, you know, again, it's a nuanced story, and from what I saw is extended networks of Vietnamese people really helping each other. And it just speaks to the way immigrant communities are able to come together and work together in a way to make a fledgling business really run in ways that Americans might not be able to. I mean, when you look at a nail salon, everybody's speaking the same language. They have a system for how customers are going to get their treatments done. And they have a system for what they're going to eat for lunch that day. A lot of times workers will, you know, be family members or extended family and living in a house together and come to work together in a van that, um, you know, the, the owners are driving back and forth every day to the neighborhoods that they live in. So, It shows just how the socialization of immigrants are able to develop an industry beyond what it was before they took a hold of it. But Vietnamese women weren't the only ones innovating in the manicure business. Korean and Latinx immigrants were also opening their own nail salons. And also in the 1980s, Black women started taking nail art to the next level. That's after the break. Plus, we've got an appointment at a magical place called Man Trap. Don't peel off. Black women's culture really invested in this new kind of nail salon and took it the nail art to another level, too. Before the 80s, you don't really see the kind of wild nail art that we're still recreating and celebrating today. We're back with documentary filmmaker Adele Freefam. In the 1970s, disco queens like Donna Summer and Diana Ross were flashing their statement nails. And with the invention of modern acrylic nails in 1978, Black women started to take their nail art to bolder and longer lengths. As best Adele can tell. 
everyday black women really started mixing it up with manicures in the 80s at a place called Mantrap in South Los Angeles. It was the first nail salon chain to open up in black neighborhoods for black women. Yeah, Mantrap grew out of a manicurist client relationship. Olivette Robinson was in the beauty biz, and a Vietnamese refugee named Charlie Vo did her nails. The two became friends, and they decided to combine their powers and open up a one-stop beauty shop. Now, we wanted to play you a little clip from the doc, so here's Charlie and Olivette from Adele's documentary, Nailed It, talking about opening Mantrap in their neighborhood. The first voice you'll hear is Olivette. We had got the place, but we didn't have a name, remember? Right, right. You know, we got to make Something them pretty. Sexy. We yeah, sexy. yeah, we gotta we're making these women pretty, uh-huh. getting them together so they can go out and trap a man. <laughs> and we just kept on talking and talking, and pretty soon I don't know which one of us said, <gasps> "Man trap," <laughs> and there was there was the name on our window. We had a picture with the lady here with the spider web, and there's a man trapped in the spider web. <laughs> man trap. <laughs> <laughs> After opening their first Mantrap nail salon, Charlie and Olivette opened up nine more. And it isn't just an all-Vietnamese nail salon moving into a Black neighborhood. It's a nail salon that's being cultivated in a multicultural environment where one of the owners is a Black woman and the other one is a Vietnamese refugee woman. And because of that friendship, you know, Everybody wanted to come hang out. It was a hangout place, right? So even more than, you know, just paying somebody to do your nails, you're coming there to socialize, to talk, to see what's going on, you know. It becomes like the center of the neighborhood, literally the salon of a working-class neighborhood in Southern California in the early 80s. So Mantrap offered up not only this social spot with affordable manicures, but they also introduced nail art that was new and out of the box, like snakeskin and rhinestones. Their most sought-after style? Long, sculpted acrylic nails. Something those fancy white lady salons weren't touching. It was curated and desired by Black women who really are the driving force in a lot of popular culture and beauty standards without getting a lot of credit. So it was important for me to establish that without Black women's culture, the man-trap phenomenon wouldn't have happened. And without this deep friendship between people from two separate groups that are often seen as acrimonious with each other, the nail salon may not be, the Vietnamese nail salon may not be what it is today at all because, you know, they opened up this entirely new market and innovated what was being done with nails in Tippy's time to the wild nail art of the 80s that has influenced fashion and, of course, hip-hop culture. But the indisputable icon of that era's wildest nail art was the world's fastest woman, Florence Griffith Joyner a.k.a. Flojo. With effective confidence that is easy to understand, Florence Griffith joined a races to change the silver medal image. Her legendary 1984 fingernails have been trimmed and are now most definitely accented in the color gold. Her self-designed outfits get your attention, too. The Florence motto, dress to look good, look good to feel good, and feel good to run fast. Flojo had started doing her own nails as a teen, and she worked as a nail tech to support herself while training for the 1988 Olympics. 
And it was at those Olympic Games where she broke records and snagged four gold medals while racing in her signature three-inch acrylics, which were painted red, white, blue, and gold for the occasion. Yeah, gold because she was going to win. But those colorful nails and equally colorful running gear made it easy for sportscasters, most of whom were white dudes, to dismiss her talents. You know, they would comment on her, quote, dragon lady fingernails and call her things like La Tigris Noir. Um, Someone made a comment in the paper years ago that, well, she won't be able to run fast with fingernails that long and her hair that way and those outfits. But I just wanted to tell them that it doesn't matter what you wear. It's what you believe that you can do. Caroline, another iconic athlete slash licensed nail tech who gets a ton of scrutiny for her fashion choices? Serena Williams. Yeah, y'all, she became a licensed nail tech in 2010, partly for the fun of it, and as part of building her beauty brand. Now, she keeps her acrylics a lot shorter than Flojo's, which makes sense since she has to, you know, like hang on to a tennis racket. Nonetheless, her manicures have been called outrageous and rule-breaking. Which brings us to our next guest, Tembi Dentonhurst, who totally gets wanting to wear fake nails, whether you're competing at Wimbledon or barely shuffling around your house during a quarantine. Tembi is a beauty and culture writer, and her Instagram is poppin' with tons of shots of her and her acrylics always on point. We found Tembi through an essay she wrote for the site Them titled, Sex with Acrylics is Safe No Matter What the Memes Say. We talked with Tembi via Skype, and we're going to get into the sex part a little bit later. But first, she breaks down her nail addiction. I call it addictive because I legitimately cannot function without them. Like, I had my nails off for all of a day, and I was like, this is the ghettoest shit I've ever experienced in my whole entire life. Never again will I ever, ever, ever do this to myself. Like, I was like, I cannot ever, ever, ever go without my nails. Each month, Tempe spends upwards of $120 on nails. And when we talked to her in early March, pre-mass quarantines, she had her nail appointments booked through June. I think that my quote-unquote addiction started right around after I got my first set. It was like this light purple color. It was like these light purple nails, and they were so pretty. And the amount of compliments I got, and just like how I would look at my hands, and I'd be like, wow, your hands are kind of nice. Like, I started to kind of just like it myself a little bit more somehow, um, because I had cute nails. When Tembi was growing up in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, getting a set was almost like a rite of passage. I think that for me, I just thought that to have nails was to be grown. I thought that like the cool older girls wore nails or it was just like you getting your nails done, you're getting your eyebrows done, you're going to the Dominican hair salon, you're getting your hair pressed out. Like, I just thought that it was just like part of the routine of being like hyper feminine or like looking all dressed up or as my mom would say, you're all dolled up. But Timby's mom wasn't down for her dolling up her nails with acrylics. She was barely letting Timby get her brows waxed. Tembi noticed, though, that the meaning of a manicure suddenly changed when the family moved from Brooklyn to Long Island. So uh, that was back in, like, the early 2000s, where I think nails were considered, like, ghetto, essentially. Like, there was no, like, no, people weren't wearing acrylics the way that they're wearing acrylics now. Now, like, as my best friend, every white woman in L.A. under the age of 30 wears acrylics. And so... Or, like, one of my coworkers who sits next to me, she's white, and she wears acrylics. And that is something that I would not have seen when I was that age, much less, like, probably in my early, like, early years of college, white women weren't really wearing acrylics like that. Like, I think that that's been a more of a recent development. Well, with all of these, you know, like, Kylie Jenner's getting into acrylics, when do you see it, like, cross into cultural appropriation? I think when we see it kind of start to 
for me at least take on a space where I'm like, this is past appreciation and this is appropriation is when people or media is crediting white people who have start to partake in that versus, you know, turning the attention to the black creators and to the black people who have been, who have created this and who still participate in this vibrant culture. Right. So for me, I think when people are like, Oh yes, like now we're seeing acrylics blow up everywhere. Thanks to Kylie Jenner wearing acrylics. It's like, no, like Kylie Jenner's wearing acrylics because Heather Sanders and black China, who she was hanging out with wore acrylics, you know, like it's not because, Oh, Kylie Jenner, found acrylics underneath a rock somewhere in Calabasas <laughs> and was like, wow, <laughs> acrylics, a compound. I'm going to put that on my nails. Like, no, right? Like, I think we need to really be responsible. So I think that, like, I think where when people are, like, you know, salivating over a look that they were calling ghetto on other people or, oh, your nails are so long, oh, that's so ghetto, or, oh, my God, how do you live like that? Or I could never do that. And then, you know, we're seeing a couple years later now that same girl now wants to go to whatever nail salon she can find to get these crazy long nails. So where is that line, do you think, that leads people to, white people, to dismiss things like acrylics as ghetto? I mean, uh, sort of the unspoken thing here is just racism, but, like, I'm hoping that you can speak a little more to that idea of, of the perception of acrylics in particular as ghetto. I think it has to do with the idea of, like, the long nails, the designed nails, like you just see, it's like over the top. Right. And so I think that if for black women specifically, I think that there's been a label of over the top as kind of a, a tagline. Like there's the angry black woman, the loud black woman, the black woman who's too much. She, she does too much. She's ghetto. It's like, it's the exact opposite of shrinking yourself and fitting in and like getting smaller and smaller and smaller until you're palatable. And so I think that to be expressive in any way with your nails, with your hair, whether it's like crazy pastel colors or you're doing your hair a certain way or you're kind of, you want to be seen and you want to be noticed. I think that that is almost seen as ghetto. Like for black women to show up and to be present and loud and vibrant and to be vivid is, I think like almost anything that can be looked at historically as ghetto is almost attached to that or attached to innovative ways to survive. And obviously racism, you know, like that's like the big, that's the big thing. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the complications of dating with your claws out. Plus, a pop over to lesbian TikTok? Touch it up and stick around. Well, I think that the assumption is that, like, lesbians don't have long nails. There's, like, an entire meme culture devoted to it. Like, the lesbian starter pack, like, they're, like, short nails, nail clippers, nails, nails, nails. Like, there's a very big fixation on nails and the hands, and I get why. We're back with nail aficionado and bad bitch Timby Dentonhurst. But what is interesting to me, too, is that I think I've noticed that in, like, the mainstream lesbian community slash like the white lesbian community is where I see that more so than like the black lesbian community where I feel like I've met a lot more femmes who wear nails and that's like not even a thing. Like it's not something that comes up in the same way, but um, yeah. Or like there's the whole like lesbian manicure thing where, you know, you have all your nails done except for two. Like that was like, you know, it's a whole uh, there's a whole subculture <laughs> around <laughs> lesbians and nail length and everything like that. So why why do you think then that 
there is that difference and that more like focus on the like lesbian starter pack must include clippers is more of like white lesbian stereotyping. I think that it has a little bit to do with the way that like, well, black women's beauty routines, a lot of them do include nails and like include acrylics and that's kind of part of our culture. And so I think that because that's the case, then there are black women who are also lesbians. And I think if you're a black lesbian and you like to look a certain way or you like to dress a certain way, then like nails is part of that. And I think that like the women that you're dating, if they're coming from the same culture that you are and they're also black would know, like, it's just like, okay, yes, this is part of our cultural heritage. So you partake in this beauty routine. That's not out of the box for me. Whereas like, if you watch like TikTok ever, like lesbian TikTok, well, one, it's a hot ass mess, but lesbian TikTok, (laughs) all of the memes and things like that kind of have to do with that. They're just like, Oh, long nails. How is she doing that with those long nails? You know, it's like all about, that's still kind of the dominant comment. That's still like a big, any comment section is going to be filled with that. Caroline, speaking of how is she doing that with those long nails, Tembi also knows firsthand how long sexy nails can lead to, um... Not-so-sexy situations. All right. So when Tembi got her first set of acrylics in college, she also had just started dating someone new. So uh, what happened was this. I got my nails, I want to say, like a week before we started dating. And, you know, as all lesbian things do, we moved very, very quickly. And it was just like, okay, I like you. You like me. Oh, my God, we're in love. Like, let's have sex. I was like, okay, great. Let's have sex. And so... I knew I had liked girls before her and I had like crushes in high school. And like, you know, of course we all have that like dramatic relationship situation, but she was like the first person that I was really, really dealing with intimately consistently. And so we were just, I was just like willing to try anything. And she was like, okay, so do you want to do this? Do you want to like finger me? And I was like, okay, yeah, why not? This sounds like a fun idea. I'm down for anything. I'm 18. The world is my oyster. I'm really confident for absolutely no reason. And I'm like, me with my pointy ass nails was like, okay, let's try this. And so I'm like, I put my fingers up there and I I pull them out. And, you know, I'm thinking everything's going well. And then she's like, oh shit. And I was like, what? She's like, I'm bleeding. And I was like, no. I was like, oh my God. I was like, you're not bleeding. I was so mortified. I like think I started crying. I think I really did start crying. I was like, this is the worst day of my life. I was like, this is horrible. What was going on in your head as as you guys were having this discussion? I was just like, wow, you really fucked up. Your first girlfriend? Wow. Hmm. Interesting. That was like really good job, Tembi. Your first girlfriend, you decide to like cut her. Now she's going to hate you and she'll never want to get married and have lesbian babies. Like this is horrible. And I was so sad. I was just like mortified. Like I just was so overwhelmed because in my head, I'm like, I knew I was inexperienced. And so for me, I was like, this is just a sign of me being inexperienced that I like don't know how to navigate with my nails. Absolutely mortified. Tembi took drastic measures. And then the next day, I literally ripped my nails off. And I wasn't even gentle about it. I, like, put them in hot water for, like, 20 minutes and then just ended up, like, pulling them off with a Metro card, freshly applied to my nails. And I was, like, popped them right off. My nails were red and raw for, like, weeks after that. But, yeah. And I I didn't wear acrylics for, like, three years after that because of it. So, yeah, that's what happened. Caroline, I will 
never look at a Metro card the Mm, same way again, right? The good news is that Timby and her college girlfriend are still together. And after a three-year break from acrylics, Timby couldn't resist the siren song of a fresh set. And with her girlfriend's blessing, Timby popped to the nail salon and got her glammed-up bad bitch statement hands back. So... When you finally tried acrylics again, were you nervous to try fingering your girlfriend again? Oh, uh, no, just don't do it. We just don't, we just, we've just removed it. We were just like, we've just cut it out of our relationship part. We just don't do it anymore. That's just over. Like, we just like, we've just made the adjustment. It's fine. Like, she's just like, she doesn't miss it. She's like, that's not really, that's like not her preference, essentially. Like, she would just, it was something that like, when we were younger, I think we were really willing to try whatever. And it was, She's like, okay, let's see how this goes. But she was never, that was never her preference. So it's like, she's me wanting to wear nails and not like fingering her after that. She was like fine with it. I think we have, like, since I've worn nails, we've tried it maybe like a few times in the past few years. And it's been fine. Like, I think I'm much more experienced now. Well, is there anything that we didn't touch on um, about? Nail art, acrylics, etc. That listeners should know before we wrap up. Um, what should they know about it? There is such a rich history and culture around nails and nail art, and I think that people should really, you know, take the time to investigate that. And for Black girls, I want them to start wearing flames on their nails and doing whatever they want to do and trying all the crazy stuff and not worrying about it and that being cool too. Like I would love for it to be free for everybody you know i would love for it to be something that feels accessible to everyone and that it's not attached to respected like expression is not attached to acceptability and i think that that goes for so many categories where you know you have to express yourself a certain way in order to be perceived a certain way and i think that that goes for looks and behaviors and things like that and i think that times are changing but i think that it's not necessarily changing for everyone and i would love to see that happen and i think that nails is a really good place in the conversation to start Caroline, I mentioned at the top of the episode that um, I am sporting my typical uh, five-year-old's manicure, which means my my nails are just dirty and unpolished. But since, uh, you know, we've got a lot of time on our hands now at home. Time on our hands. Time on our hands to put paint on our hands. (laughs) Um, No, I'm really excited to try out one tip that Adele passed along that she learned while going to all these incredible Vietnamese nail salons to film her documentary, Nailed It. She says that the key to painting your own nails is always having like a paintbrush with some nail polish remover just like ready to go to clean up any spots because that's always that's always my problem. I'm left-handed, my right hand looks terrific, my left hand looks like a five-year-old did it, you know? It really fits with your aesthetic though, I know. apparently. <laughs> Is she five? Is she 35? Who can tell? Maybe now, thanks to Adele, I'm going to step up my nail game during these quarantines. <laughs> during these quarantines. Well, yeah, during these quarantines, y'all, let us know what you think. What are your thoughts on manicures? Like, what do acrylics and fake nails and nail art mean to you? And 
how are you doing your nails during quarantine? Let us know. You can email us at hello at unladylike.co. Hit us up on social at unladylike media or find our private Facebook group and join the thread for this episode. You can also visit our website, unladylike.co, to find this episode's sources and transcript. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get a weekly dose of desperately needed actually good news, which, yes, is still happening. And to prove it, just subscribe to our newsletter. (laughs) To watch Adele's documentary, Nailed It, head over to nailedit.doc.com. It's incredible. And it was the inspiration for this entire episode. And you can find Tembe on Instagram at Tembe, that's T-E-M-B-A-E, or follow her work on New York Magazine's The Strategist, which is a website I'm obsessed with and I love it, and it's just, I am a consumer whore. I, wow, okay, I'm obsessed with The Strategist too, (laughs) that's what I was going to say. Also, see what you did there, Tembe. Love that. Um, Also love everyone who has supported us over on Patreon. If you want ad-free extra unladylike bonus episodes, head over to patreon.com slash unladylike media and subscribe to also directly support us. Nora Ritchie is the producer of Unladylike. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford. Executive producers are Chris Bannon, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week. It's kind of unprecedented that you would read 2,000 negative things written about yourself in a week. You know, like that's, that's, that's an unusual situation that not a lot of people have been through, I don't think. We're talking to Natalie Wynn, creator of the wildly popular YouTube channel ContraPoints, all about what it's like to get canceled. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike so you don't miss this episode. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. That's after the break. Plus, we've got an appointment at a magical place called Man Trap. Orange stick around. (laughs) What? Get it? No. Those wooden sticks that they used to push your cuticles back are called orange sticks. Leave all of this in. (laughs) Oh, my God. Stitcher. 